I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. On today's episode, I'm speaking with one of the UK's leading neuroscientists. And as you're about to find out, Dr. Tara Swart is an expert in explaining neuroplasticity in a way that even I can understand. In basic terms, she's going to explain how to keep your brain healthy, and she's going to go through some really amazing studies that show how you can use your brain to trick your body into thinking it's younger, healthier, or even fitter. I hope you enjoy the episode. Joining me today, neuroscientist, medical doctor, executive advisor, senior lecturer, and best-selling author, Dr. Tara Swart. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Andy. No worries. So you're an expert in neuroplasticity. So let's start there. How do you explain what that is to a layman? Sure. Well, I did my PhD in neuroscience about 25 years ago, and we didn't really know much about neuroplasticity then. We thought that the brain was quite fixed by the time you were 18. And neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to change and grow. And we can really see that happening in sort of toddlers and teenagers, just how much they develop and change. But we kind of thought that by the time you physically stopped growing and you became an adult, that you were sort of stuck with the personality and the intelligence and, you know, all sorts of factors that are governed by your brain for the rest of your life. We now know that that active process actually goes on till we're about 25. And that from 25 to 65, you can do things to keep your brain as plastic or flexible as possible. And that if you start, there's a window in your late 30s to early 40s where you can now you're incorporate talking. certain... <laughs> Is that that's, where you that, are? That's my window. That's my window. Okay, that's your window. Okay, good. So if there's certain things that you could do now that could help to prevent any kind of cognitive decline that you would normally expect from the age of 70 onwards. Like what? What do, what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> um, so they're the very basic things that we could speak more about, like adequate length and quality of sleep, eating in a you know brain first kind of way. Your brain's a tiny proportion of your body weight, but it's actually the most metabolically hungry organ in your body. So it uses up 20 to 30% of what you eat. Um, drinking enough water, doing some exercise, doing some meditation. And for the aging piece, there's one additional element, which is having positive, meaningful social relationships. Right. So if you've got good friends, it will help with your brain development. Totally. It and I think we've probably seen more than ever in 2020 that having to be isolated from people, how damaging that is to our attention, our concentration, our focus, our motivation. Um, so that sense of belonging piece that's always been an important part of neuroscience, I really think we've taken for granted. And, mm. and now we're sort of seeing the effects of not having that. So if you fast forward and imagine, you know, an older person may be widowed, Maybe, you know, children and grandchildren live far away. And so they're lonely and isolated in a way that we've only had a glimpse of in you know, the last year. You can see why people's brains start to deteriorate. They don't have that intellectual conversation. They don't have a laugh with someone. Um, you know, they don't play ping pong with someone. So all of those things are actually really good for your brain. And there's another really interesting one that I found out about recently with older people because older people tend to eat softer foods just because you know their teeth and things like that. But actually having to chew on hard food helps to maintain the generation of brain cells and brain connections. So things like you know eating a carrot stick, um, eating nuts, that action of your jaw seems to somehow contribute to the brain staying flexible as well. So you know I try to eat more raw foods for that reason and it really makes me think about how in old people's homes, they just kind of give them like almost like, you know, liquid or mushy diets. Yeah. And that's so not good for us. 
we wow. all lived long enough, we would all get some symptoms of dementia. But ways to protect ourselves against that are the higher the level of your education, that makes the threshold for showing dementia symptoms later. So the difference between finishing school, going to university, getting a master's or a PhD. So learning, um, intense learning and effort seems to protect the brain for the future. Um, being multilingual might protect your brain in the future. Um, I'm not ticking any of these boxes. Well, it's not too late for you to start learning a new language. And that would be the best thing you can do for your brain in adulthood is learn a new language or learn a musical instrument. Do you play a musical yes, instrument? Yes, bagpipes. There you go. <laughs> With what, what happens? Why? Because like why, I've heard that before, that if you learn a musical instrument when you're younger or you're bilingual and you know more than one language, uh, you're smarter. Is it that simple? Well, you're smarter in a particular way. So... You know, I don't really think IQ is a very good measure of how smart you are anyway. And I think we're much more aware now that there are things like emotional intelligence and intuition and, you know, sort of body intelligence, um, you know, understanding what's going on in your body that are important. But if you are bilingual from a young age, you have increased cognitive flexibility. So what we call executive functions of the brain, which are the highest functions of the brain, that include things like regulating your emotions, solving complex problems, thinking flexibly, thinking creatively, being able to override unconscious biases. Um, those are boosted by being bilingual. There's this fascinating study that was done on Israeli judges that were granting parole. And the graph of like from 100% parole to zero parole literally spikes like this three times. And the experiment reveals that the 100% paroles and the higher numbers of paroles are within one and a half hours of a meal time. And by the time all the glucose in the body has gone back to a low level, because the brain can't store glucose for later use, they were not able to override the unconscious biases. So these paroles were particularly of young black men. Um, oh, my God. So because yeah. there's, there's studies about also with judges, isn't there, where you're more likely to get parole if you are in front of the judge in the morning, because that's when they've just eaten. And they've just woken up from a, you know, hopefully a decent night's sleep, which means that you, you also have more brain power. I mean, you know, I'm showing you my glass of water now. Your brain power is like this. When you wake up in the morning, it's full. Mm -hmm. Every time you make a decision, it's like you're taking a sip from that glass of water. And, you know, particularly if you're making decisions for other people, like if you've got kids, what should they wear? What should they eat? Just tiny decisions. Um, you're using up that power. And if you're stressed, then it's almost like there's a little crack in the glass and the water's just slowly leaking out all day as well. Um, and, you know, there, there are statistics that say that 70, 75% of people in the modern world are stressed all the time. And, you know, we're in a global pandemic, so that's probably even higher now. Um, so first thing in the morning, you know, after a good rest, you know, if you've just had breakfast then you've fueled your brain, if you have had, you know, strategic use of caffeine is also good for your brain, but not too late in the day. Oh, Make talk sure to brain... me about coffee. Yeah, because a lot of people drink coffee. Is that is that a good thing for your brain or how much should we be drinking? So to me, it's not so much about the amount, but it's about the time of day. And it's also about the quality of the coffee, because one of the things that I was going to come on to later, but I have to mention it now in relation to the coffee is that dark skinned foods are good for your brain. So things like chocolate. Dark as long as it's over 80%. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, a good quality coffee, you know, preferably organic, because otherwise there's a lot of chemicals in in the uh, processing, particularly of decaf coffee. Um, and then like, you know, black beans, purple sprouting broccoli, um, aubergine, things like, you know, so choosing foods that have dark skin um, is good for you. So caffeine is good for your brain you know I certainly use it if I'm jet lagged for example that's that's what I would call very strategic use of caffeine at, at the wrong time of the day as it were mm. but the problem with caffeine is that the quarter life of caffeine is 12 hours so 12 hours after you've had your last coffee or tea a quarter of that caffeine is buzzing around your brain so I always used to say like finish by lunchtime but now personally I don't drink any caffeine after 10 a.m. Really? Okay. 
so that's going to affect your sleep later on, isn't it? Obviously, yeah. we're talking about neuroplasticity. The left and the right side of the brain, is that where, how does that fit into the whole concept of neuroplasticity? Well, basically it doesn't. So one of the things about neuroscience is that it has evolved so much since we've had sophisticated scanning techniques that some of the things that we used to think were true, we've had to really stand up in public and say, it doesn't work like that anymore. Um, so there are two hemispheres of the brain, but they're connected by a very thick bridge whose fibers fan deeply into both sides of the brain. So it's just, it's simply not the case that any structures or pathways in the brain are, are on the left or the right. Everything's completely interconnected. The other thing on that and relating it to neuroplasticity is that there aren't physical parts of the brain that are responsible for different activities. It's all about systems and networks and pathways that interact with each other. And the more interconnected your brain is, that is basically neuroplasticity in action. So, you know, if I see... If I see a person that I know is from a certain country and I've got something in common with them and they remind me of something else and I'm putting all of that together really quickly in my brain um, to have like an appropriate interaction with them, that's better than if I'm like, oh, I've got to think about remembering this person's name and then I've got to try to be emotionally intelligent and friendly and then mm. I've got to recall certain information. You know, it's, if it was all disjointed, um, we wouldn't, you know, our brains wouldn't be the amazing, sophisticated thing that it is. And one of my favorite phrases is, if the brain was so simple that we could understand it, we would be so simple that we couldn't. Wow. <laughs> you, you've hurt me. You've hurt me right in the, right in the brain. <laughs> yeah, I was talking about this last night and with my fiance, Jackie, and we were talking about how it's so crazy. Well, I was I was saying it after reading your book. It's so crazy how the one thing we can't work out is the thing that's trying to work it out. Exactly. Uh, that's just I don't know. That's that, yeah. It's that's that's, a, that's one for a pot smoker to try and try and work out <laughs> while they're chatting with their mates or something. It's a crazy one, isn't or, it? Or or you could do some introspection and journaling and it, what's called metacognition, which is thinking about thinking, and so you know, way that that would really apply to you or I or your listeners is that let's say you had a small argument with Jackie and you ended up saying something that you wish you hadn't. Not, you know, nothing major, but you could have just not said it. Hmm. If you reflect on that and you work out why you said it and the impact that it had and you don't do it again, that is your brain working yourself out. And that's what we all need to be doing. Um, yeah. And then, of course, on top of that, you know, these amazing ways of scanning the brain now, functional um, like MRI and everything is showing us a lot more about how we think, how we experience emotions, how we regulate them, how we take risks, um, what happens to the brain when we're stressed and stuff like that. So we can learn a lot from that, too. When you're talking about processing things and um, trying to make sure everything's working together to work things out. Isn't meditating quite good to help with that process? Meditation is one of those, you know, top five things that I talk about in terms of improving your mental health and your brain performance. Um, it's really important because we, we've become so busy. And so we kind of have an on off switch, like we're either asleep or we're focused on doing something. We don't, you know, when we lived in the cave, we didn't need to meditate because we looked at the stars in the sky at night. We sat around the campfire and stared into it. And, you know, we had proper, really attentive interactions with the people in our tribe. Now we're constantly switched on and distracted and, you know, particularly through technology. Um, we have to take some time to counteract that. And so, Meditation is one of the things under the umbrella of mindfulness that you can do to try to counteract that. Another one is yoga. Another one is a digital detox. Um, another one is spending time in nature. So, you know, things like I count mindful walking and mindful eating as part of my like meditation for the day. So, and, and you know, something that's come up really this year is 
the meaning of proper rest. Rest isn't watching TV or having a beer. It's properly doing nothing, like letting your mind wander or absolutely paying attention to your loved ones without, you know, your device in the background. Let's just take meditating for for an example. If, if someone was going to meditate or if someone was going to go for a mindfulness walk, what is actually going on um, in the brain? You talk about the stress hormone. What's actually going on that is, and, and what's the, the benefit that you get out of it at the other end? So in the moment, the main benefits are this change of wave state from very focused to more... Um, relaxed, relaxed alertness, basically. And so people who never go into that state usually just fall asleep when they meditate because they don't know how to stay awake and be relaxed at the same time. It takes some time, like weeks, for your levels of the stress hormone cortisol to generally become lower than people that don't meditate or do yoga. Um, so there's a study that shows that women who do yoga three times a week have lower cortisol levels than women of the same age that don't, but this process takes about eight weeks of practice. After about three months of regular practice, and I would say that that is at a minimum 12 minutes of meditation most days of the week, so four or five days of the week, um, you actually see physical structural changes in the brain. So the brain has lots of folds on the outside. And when people regularly meditate for two to three months, we see a denser folding of the outer cortex of the brain. And what that actually means is that when your amygdala, which is the seat of all our emotions, and it's in the limbic system, which is the emotional intuitive system of the brain, when that fires off a, I'm scared or I'm angry, the rational parts of the front of the cortex, if they're more densely folded, that presses a pause button on our emotions. So you may think, oh, you know, I've just seen something that maybe I should be afraid of. But if you've been meditating regularly, you're more likely to think, is it really something I should be afraid of? Um, could it be somebody that needs help? How can I make myself safe? And you, you manage to think all of that before you scream out, you know? Mm. And it's the same like, the example I gave of having an argument with your partner, people who regularly meditate, for, who've done it for more than three months, are less likely to say something that they regret than somebody who's done nothing to regulate their emotions. My God. All right. Yoga it is then. Or maybe I'll just go <laughs> for a walk. We'll see. Let's talk about diet. Let's talk about food. Is being hangry, is that a real thing? Yes, definitely. Um so, you know, we've already talked about the unconscious biases and um, the difference between having eaten recently and not having eaten recently. But, and we've separately talked about emotional regulation, which is that we all have emotions. We all will, you know, have an emotional response to something good or bad that happens around us. But the thing about emotions that's important is to have a, a range that, you know, there's a sort of normal range for people, but people who are emotionally dysregulated get super elated and really angry. And it's like, it's a bit more than is kind of acceptable in society or is good for yourself. So with emotions, we want to be able to keep them in check. We don't want to be, um, you know, too angry, too jealous, um, or even, you know, sort of too happy in a way that kind of isn't sustainable. So when you eat, because, your, what your brain uses to think, your cognitive resources are glucose and oxygen. And glucose is the breakdown products of a healthy diet. It's not refined sugar. So if you've so you got can't glucose, just have gummy bears. You can't, and you can't, you can't have milk, milk chocolate, no. <laughs> okay. Um, because that would completely spike your glucose level and then the insulin would work quickly to bring it down. So then you wouldn't have resources left for your brain. But if you eat low GI, low glycemic index foods, then a decent amount of glucose is going to last for longer. Um, also, snacking is, is good for your brain. But as long as it's like nuts and seeds, not Haribo's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that why with when you do eat chocolate, you actually do feel better? Is that actually a thing that, that goes straight to your brain? Is that what that is? Well, interestingly, I have a little rugby anecdote for you here because I know that's your Go other on. thing. Um, 
so the spring box just before they leave the changing rooms to go out onto the field to play each eat a square of dark chocolate because once you even if you're a professional once you get out into an auditorium and you see 50 or 100,000 you know people there that you are going to have a stress response to that but they don't want glucose to be taken away from their muscles because they may have to sustain 90 minutes of performance so that little square of chocolate means there's some free glucose that's just gone into your bloodstream and if you have a bit of a like oh this is a bit overwhelming like initial reaction your brain can take up that chocolate straight away and not use up resources that um need to be made available for your muscles over the course of the game oh my goodness wow neuroscience and rugby totally yeah i've been i've been saying i should do that for years actually yeah you should get involved everyone's always looking for that extra two percent extra one percent or whatever it is what does a good diet look like what are some of the things okay let's look at a bad diet first let's look at highly processed foods how does that affect the brain well could we do something a bit different which is how I have completely changed my diet during the global pandemic because I understand how stress works in the brain and the body. Yeah. So what a good diet looked like before the pandemic was that you were, you know, eating healthily, you weren't eating processed food, you were eating plenty of vegetables, um, lots of good fats like oily fish, avocados, olives, nuts and seeds, nut and seed oils, olive oil, avocado oil, um, eggs, fish and seafood, some lean meat, um, if you eat meat, and uh, berries, and hydrating foods like salads, cucumber, melons, things like that. So basically, you're getting the water and the good fats, which is what your brain's made up of. And you're getting the omegas from the fish and the micronutrients and magnesium from the nuts and seeds. That, that was a good diet. If you, that was at level one, you know, a good eating like that three times a day. If you wanted to take it to the next level, you could bring in some time restricted eating because fasting is also good for your brain. I know that's a bit counterproductive. And that's why to go to the next level, you'd have to be someone that was sleeping eight hours, 15 minutes every night at the same sleep and wake times, exercising regularly, meditating regularly, consistently eating healthily, and drinking half a litre of water for every 15 kilos of your body weight per day. So if you then wanted to take it to the next level, which is what I used to do, is eat only between 12 noon and 8 p.m. So I would never have breakfast unless I had a really important you know, coaching client or a talk to give or something, then I would. And if you wanted to take it even to the next level, you would practice intermittent fasting, which is two days of the week, non-consecutive, you reduce your calorie intake to 500 calories for a woman and 600 calories for a man, but you always eat normally on the other days. That's a way of improving your resilience by putting yourself through starvation stress and then always managing your recovery afterwards. It's the same reason that people do um, ice bathing and followed by sauna. Mm. In a lot of sports, people do that. Um, so I used to do cold shower followed by hot bath. But now... We have been under unprecedented chronic stress for about a year. And so the last thing we want to do is bring any more stress into the system because what the body does when it experiences chronic stress is it thinks that you're, you're about to die. And so to protect you, one of the first things it does is lay down extra fat in your abdominal fat cells so that if starvation was the potential threat, you would have that fat to burn for longer whilst you looked for food. I mean, this is... You know, this is going back to caveman stuff. That's how primitive our brains can become when it's posed with such a threat like the one that we're under at the moment. So because of that, I have started eating breakfast again because I can't put my body through starvation. It's already too stressed. Um, I've shifted the ratio of protein and carbohydrates so that I have very little stuff that, you know, puts my, my glucose level up quickly. So... You know, if I eat carbohydrates, then they're slow release, like um, complex carbohydrates. And so basically, if you eat regularly and you signal to your brain that there's no danger of starvation, 
it could actually trigger your brain to cause fat release from your abdomen because it's the stress that's holding onto the fat, not what you're eating. If you do high intensity exercise, you are stressing out your body and that will also cause you to retain fat. So, you know, even in normal times, I work with stressed people. That's, you know, part of my, my sort of specialism. I would hear people say, you know, the belt's getting a bit tighter. My arms and legs are the same, but it's all around the middle. And I've tried eating a bit less and I've tried exercising a bit more and it's not making any difference. And I would know that that's cortisol. Now, you don't need to be a neuroscientist to work out that we've all got high levels of cortisol. So I've been doing a lot more like forward folding yoga, walks. You know, I was, I was, I bought a Peloton, you know, at first in lockdown because I was so sedentary, sort of, you know, sat working from home. And then I realized that if I really go for it on a Peloton, obviously you can, you know, do a gentler version on a Peloton. But if I really go for it, I'm telling my brain that I have to run away from a predator. And my brain's in like pr primal mode now. So it's definitely going to see that as a, why is her heart rate gone up? Why is her breathing rate gone up? You know, there must be a threat. So it's counterproductive by getting out, doing a lot of exercise during the pandemic or where, when you're stressed can actually... If, if it's high intensity. So exercise that is high intensity causes a stress response in the body. You release cortisol and adrenaline. So really heavy weights, um, you know, something that like a boot camp kind of thing that would make you really like elevate your heart rate and your breathing rate. It's better to do gentler exercise at the moment. And I haven't eaten breakfast for years. It's so weird for me now that, you know, that I do eat breakfast. And actually this morning we went out for a drive before and I, you know, I knew I had to get back in time for lunch to speak to you. And I sort of thought, oh, I forgot I didn't have breakfast and I was really hungry. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's interesting that, that my brain craves that now in a way that it didn't, you know, I was, I never got hungry in the morning. I, I usually had to eat like by 12, 1230, but um, yeah, it's just, I find, I just find it so fascinating as a neuroscientist to see just like what's, what's happened in my brain and body in the last year that I'm aware of, you know, that is, yeah. is caused by these things that I study. Yeah. What, what about trusting your gut? Like when you're talking about, yeah, packing on a few pounds around the um, around the abdominals over over this over this period what about trusting your gut while we're on it like is that is that a thing like you you know and you've got this gut feeling or gut instinct or whatever you call it is that related to the brain I love this question um so you know I've I've been someone that's relied on my intuition throughout my life and this is the pleasure of being a neuroscientist that's gone from being like a woo-woo thing to being proved by scanning technologies. So we know that there's a lot of neurons in the gut and that there's a strong nerve connection between the gut and that limbic part of the brain, which is the emotional and intuitive part of the brain. What we know now is that there is actually a three-way communication between the gut neurons, the gut bacteria and the brain. So the gut bacteria obviously talks has an effect on the gut neurons itself and the gut lining. But it also separately sends chemical messages in the blood directly to the brain. So the gut bacteria talk to the gut neurons and the brain directly, and you know all three of them communicate with each other. So if you're stressed, if you eat a lot of processed food, if you drink a lot of alcohol, sugary drinks, if you've taken antibiotics, and it's damaged the quality and diversity of your gut bacteria, basically it sends the wrong signals to the gut neurons and the brain. And that starts to create brain fog and an inability to trust your intuition because it may just be taking shortcuts for your survival all the time now, rather than using the wisdom that you've picked up in your life and you know putting patterns together that can guide you. So intuition can be a really good thing, but usually at times of stress, it gets compromised by the quality of your gut bacteria. Now, interestingly, with gut bacteria, all of the things that we've just talked about have a specific effect on the quality and diversity of your gut microbiome. So things like, because gut bacteria have circadian rhythms, which is like how we live by the light-dark cycle. You know, we sleep when it's dark, mm. we wake up when it's light. So when you travel and you get um, jet lag, your gut bacteria get jet lag too. And that's why um, 
the times that you need to go to the bathroom and the times that you get hungry are all wrong because it's it's um, affecting your gut bacteria as well. So things like regular good quality sleep, physical exercise, eating your you know your greens and your healthy food, drinking enough water, um, all of those things have a, a benefit on your gut bacteria. Even meditation and some psychological therapies improve the quality of your gut bacteria. Really? Yes. And there are certain strains of probiotics that you can take. So that's a little, you know, a little drink that you have that goes into your gut. Yeah, the things that like look like yogurt, but it's not quite, is it yogurt? It's like watery yeah, yogurt or those something. One, those ones aren't as good. There are some very, very good liquid ones now that you have to keep in the fridge, which right. are you know, really, really good. Um, where, do you, where do you get one of those from? Is, you can, keep, can you get them from a supermarket or is it a... Um, I think you can get them from health food shops and online. So I can tell you the one that I take. Yeah, go on. If I'm allowed to, yeah. Um, so I take Simprove, which is a liquid that you keep in the fridge. You have it first thing in the morning. And then you can't even drink water for 10 minutes because of the action of the, of the stomach acid. And, but any, you know, capsule that's got over 50 billion strains of bacteria, that will be good. There are a few strains of bacteria. Don't ask me to say the names because they're just like so weird and long, but I wrote a blog on my Forbes channel about probiotics called psychobiotics that if you take them for a month, you have improved insomnia, less anxiety, People have even been able to lower the dose of their antidepressant medication or come off it completely just by taking a probiotic. Wow, that would be a game changer. Why don't we know more about this? Like, why don't people why, why don't people know about this? Why isn't it in mainstream media? I don't know. I talk about it all the time. I mean, partly because I think the reason is that it's not a drug, so it does it falls between like food and a drug, if you know what I mean. Mm. So it's not like the research can't be done on it as if it's a medicine yeah but you're never going to go to a, a psychiatrist or a doctor say you're depressed and they're going to say take some probiotics are, are you that's not that that time is going to come i promise you they are now looking they are doing a trial at king's um, college london on probiotics for parkinson's disease probiotics have been used as the treatment not an adjunct the treatment for urinary tract infections um, this book that was written by somebody I've become, I decided to become best friends with him because I love the book so much um, <laughs> The Psychobiotic Revolution written by Scott Anderson which is based on the research of John Cryan and, and some other amazing people um, that's more specific about the effect of probiotics on the brain I grew up in the 70s and 80s and I loved science fiction so I read it, I watched Star Wars and Star Trek and everything and what I've come to realize at my ripe old age is that what we used to think was science fiction, a lot of that is now proven by science. So I'm less skeptical of things because I think, because I've just seen like so many, yeah. you know, things. You, you need to listen to my interview with uh, Matthew Griffin, the, the futurist. Oh, yeah. That's right. That'll be right up your street. So much oh. science fiction. So much science fiction is is here right now. It's crazy, mm. but yeah, I, I guess it's happening with medicine as well. Yeah, and and it's also happening with um, like ancient philosophies. So you know, I grew up in an in an Indian with an, you know in an Indian family, but in London, and you know, my mum used to go on about turmeric all the time and say like it can cure bowel cancer and it can prevent dementia and stuff like that. And me and my brother would just like laugh because we just thought it was ridiculous. Roll forward 20 years, I'm at medical school, that gets proven. You know, roll forward another 20 years and, um, you know, everyone's taking turmeric supplements mm. and we know that inflammation is the, basically the root of all disease. Um, so, you know, and I was a practicing psychiatrist for seven years and I was very respectful about supplements that people were on and I always did a proper cross-check of their, the drugs that I wanted to prescribe and the supplements that they were on. I'm not practicing as a psychiatrist now, but when I give, you know, advice to my executive clients, um, I do look at what medication they're on, but I always say that's under the care of your doctor, but I give them lots of advice about supplements and pretty much across the board, I advise people to take probiotics and, you know, I've been given so much good feedback about how it's helped them with jet lag, how it's helped them if they've had to take antibiotics, um, just how it's, you know, helped to clear brain fog, 
Um, Doesn't it help with negative thinking as well? Yes, yeah. It's crazy. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How important is hydration for the brain? Obviously, we all know you don't drink, you die. But what what's the sort of scientific explanation behind how important hydration is how often do you need to hydrate what's going on there well you say that we all know that if you don't drink you die but i'm just really surprised by how many people hardly drink any water um, and certainly not close enough to what you should drink so the formula is half a liter for every 15 kilos of your body weight per day and if you drink quite a lot of caffeine or alcohol then you need to add in an extra glass of water to make up for that because they actually make you release water from your cells. I always say to people, you wouldn't drive your car to work if you hadn't filled it up with oil and water, but you get out of bed in the morning, grab a coffee, don't drink any water and expect to be a really great manager or leader today. You touched on sleep and 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 what effects that can have on you. What what kind of sleep are we do we need in order to completely service our brain hmm. so we, 98 to 99 percent of human brains need seven to nine hours of sleep per night um, more recent research shows that eight hours and 15 minutes is ideal if you sleep longer than that it can actually be depressogenic which means it can lead to negative thinking and low mood however because i wear this aura ring which tracks my sleep you need to be in bed for at least nine hours to get eight hours and 15 minutes of sleep. Um, so look at your sleep time as well as your how much time you're in bed, they're not the same thing. If you sleep on your right or left side, rather than your front or back, that helps your brain clean itself overnight more efficiently. Oh yes, <laughs> I sleep on my right. Okay, good. Okay, so Are you good. right or left-handed? I'm right-handed. Okay. Doesn't, it doesn't matter which, which side it is. So, so there's a very active cleansing process of the brain that takes seven to eight hours, which is why we say you need seven to nine hours of sleep. Um, and yeah, lying on the side helps that flushing out of toxins. Um, those, those toxins are exactly the same that we see in the pathology of dementing diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So you know, chronic disruption of sleep could also lower your threshold for getting dementia later in life. Did I mention regular sleep and wake times also have a benefit on, on the brain? No, you didn't. That's interesting. So it's not just about like, you know, getting eight hours of good quality sleep. It's if you go to bed at the same time, and wake up at the same time every day. Actually, it's within an hour. So it's not that strict. Like, you know, if you go to bed at like between 9.30 to 10.30, mm. um, that has an additional benefit. And obviously just things like, that the room is at quite a cool temperature, that it's dark, that it's quiet, um, that you have like breathable materials in your bedding and stuff like that. Okay. Helps. Okay. What about wearing socks and gloves? People wear that. It's weird, but I've heard that that helps. I wear socks. I have to say, I, I like wearing socks to bed um, because if your extremities are cold, then your body will work to pump blood to your extremities. Um, I've never ever thought about wearing gloves in bed, although because my husband wakes up like hours before me, he comes back into bed around the time that I wake up. And during this recently in winter, I have said to him, you've got to put your little fingerless gloves on because you come back into bed with these freezing cold hands and I don't want you know to get cold when I'm all snuggled up in bed. Let's go back to exercise because you mentioned that 
you want to take it easy at the moment. You want to do kind of light exercise because you don't want to create more stress for the body. And then hence it would, it'll release, is it cortisol and store fat around your tummy? Yeah. 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 Okay. So what exercise should you usually be doing? Like what, what kind of exercise, let's say we're not, you say it's normal, normal days. No one's ever heard of COVID. Mm -hmm. What kind of exercise is good for the brain? So the first thing is that you should not be sedentary. So you should be getting 10,000 steps a day. So that's normal times. Now I'm saying five to 10,000 steps a day. Um, and then on top of that, you should try to get 150 minutes of aerobic exercise per w week. It's not actually that much. Um, and by aerobic exercise, are you talking about walking? Are you talking about running? It would have to be brisk walking, jogging, running, uh, football, rugby, um, so it's five half tennis. hour, five half hour brisk walks minimum. Yes. Okay. And, the, okay. and that, that you can do now. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that now, but, um, or even, you know, and a lot of people, it's freezing now. So, you know, if you've got a, an indoor bike or a rowing machine or something, then doing that, but just not pushing yourself like so hard that it's stressful for your body. Um, the good news that I am keeping for myself to make an excuse for not doing as much exercise right now is that if you regularly do aerobic exercise then the turnover of cell generation in your brain is about 12 or 13 percent per day if you don't do exercise for a while and then you start again the turnover of new cells which contributes to neuroplasticity goes up to 30 percent so I never feel guilty if I stop exercising for a while. So I'm like, when I start again, it's going to be so good for my brain. So the high percentage is better. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Because you want like, you know, fresh cells and fresh connections and um, you don't want things to stay, stay static. Remember, we talked about plasticity and flexibility. How much does a positive mindset have on the actual physical health of the brain? So if I'm being positive, does it? I mean, I might feel positive, but is my brain actually in a better physical shape health-wise? So two ways to answer that. If we look at the factors that contribute to resilience, optimism is one of them. So that's basically a positive mindset. The other ones are flexibility, which we spoke about, um, a strong set of core values, your physical health. So yeah, all of those things are combined. People can have quite a lot of negative self-talk and there's actually some very old sports psychology research from the 60s that shows that if you focus on um, your own past successes, so you say like, I've started a podcast before, I can start a new one, you know, I know how to make it successful. Let's say I wanted to start a podcast and I haven't started one before, I'd say, look at Andy, he, you know, he built up the most popular sports podcast in the country and now he's doing different things with it, I reckon I could have a go at that. And then there is this negative self-talk where we might say things like, oh, I'm not good enough, or that's never going to happen for me. And what neuroplasticity shows now is that if you overwrite that negative self-talk with a positive statement or a positive mindset, you actually change pathways in your brain because your brain will go down the path of least resistance. So a, a repeated thought becomes a pathway in your brain. Where does visualization come into that? Um, again, that's something that people were doing a lot in sports, but hadn't really translated to business or general life. But the brain hardly distinguishes between a strongly visualized event and reality. So, for example, Lindsay Vonn, the Olympic skier, she always used to say, by the time I come to the start line, I have run that race a hundred times in my head. So to her brain, it's not like, oh, this is a new ski slope. Oh, I don't know all the turns. It's, oh, yeah, I recognize this. I've done this before. So I'm not going to have a threat response. I'm just going to get on with it. Um, I always, if I, when I was traveling around the world doing a lot of talks, would try to go and just see the room the night before. Or if I couldn't, I would Google it to see, like, if I can get some idea of what that room looks like. Because the more familiar it is, the less of a threat response you're mm. going to have. But for, you know, normal people in life, if you visualize what you'd like your life to look like, feel like, who would be in it, what you'd be doing, um, the more you do that, 
you're priming your brain to notice and grasp opportunities that might come up around you that could lead you to that becoming more likely to become true. And isn't there, didn't you mention in your book something about guys doing weights with their fingers or their finger strength or something, something along oh, those lines? Oh my goodness. This is, when I found this research, I mean, it's just mind blowing. Okay, so there's these weightlifters and they they either did finger weights or elbow weights. So it was to build up muscles in your fingers or your biceps. And there was a group of people that did no weights and showed no change in the size of their muscles in their fingers or their biceps. One group did weight training every day for a week or two weeks. I can't remember what the study was exactly. And one group only visualized lifting finger weights or elbow weights. And whereas, you know, like the people who lifted weights showed a 30 something percent increase in the size of those muscles. The people who only visualized it had like a 15% increase in the size of their muscles. Even I can't, you know, like get my head around that, to be honest. Um, but my favorite study is the one that was done on octogenarians. Oh, so yeah. Were, this is amazing. Yeah, I was going to yeah, ask you about this. There were three groups of people in their 80s. One group, control group, carried on like normal for, for one week. One group reminisced about being 20 years younger for a week. And one group actually moved into houses that looked like their houses did 20 years ago. If they weren't using, you know, reading glasses or walking sticks 20 years ago, those were taken away from them for a week. And they had photos around the house of them from 20 years ago. And they got sent newspapers every day that were dated 20 years ago. And they had to talk as if like they were in that time. At the end of a week, they had increased physical strength, increased musculoskeletal coordination, improved visual acuity. When people were shown before and after photos of them after one week, everyone rated them as looking younger after a week. And they had improvements in mood and stuff as well. But the interesting thing is, that the re- I know, it's so cool. Yeah. It's so good. But the reminiscing group had improvements as well. Not as much, but they did. So, you know, that's something that we could all do now, even in lockdown. We could reminisce about being out with our friends, reminisce about going on holiday. Um, it's crazy, isn't it? Because your brain and and, and just thinking can have a physical impact on your body. And the thing about neuroplasticity that I think is a really important message to remember is that it can be a really good thing or it can be a really bad thing. So if you're constantly reminiscing about a breakup, let's say, Mm. then you're embedding in your brain um, that relationships are bad. You can't trust anyone. If you love somebody, they'll hurt you. And if you reinforce that in your brain you will begin to believe that that's the truth. Well, when it comes to male and female, is there anything different in the brain? There are a few little differences, but they're less than that of height. So let's say you've got a room with 100 people in it and you ask them to line up according to their height. It wouldn't be like all men in the first 50 and all women in the second 50. There's some, you know, some women are taller than men. Yeah. And it's kind of like that with brain. I mean, just because women's skulls are a bit smaller uh, an easy way to guess the gender of a brain is on size but if you corrected for the difference in size between men and women like if you scaled me up to be the same Mm. height as you there would be be no difference um and there are just a few things two things particularly that may be worth mentioning again it doesn't apply to everyone but uh, after puberty women tend to be better at social recognition like names faces events and men male brains tend to be better than female brains at navigation in 3d so for example i don't know about you but i can often be found crying on street corners in my native <laughs> london because i just like i've got an it's a big city in my head it's a big city don't worry about it <laughs> um i just i just don't i cannot navigate in 3d i mean if i even if i've got google maps if it's upside down I'll turn the wrong way. Yeah. So, you know, I think I definitely have that very female brain. There's been some studies done about men, that the biggest differences between men and women being that men are more interested in things and women being more interested in people. Is that, have you heard of that? I've heard a similar one that says men, men's use of language and their behavior is more based on competing 
and women's use of language and behavior is more um, based on relating to others. Right, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Does that, do you think that has an effect on, you look at some industries in, in the world, like, for example, we'll take two really obvious ones um, that, I don't know, if you, have you heard of Jordan Peterson? Yeah. So he talks about this a lot. He talks about men more like so if you look at two industries you look at nursing and you look at engineering two on the two things on the opposite ends of the, ends of the scale where men are more likely to become engineers and women are more likely to become more likely to become nurses um do you know much about that do you know much about that area of work yeah i so i've i've read a lot about it cordelia fine and gina ripper and other sort of neuroscientists that look at that a lot Everything that you've just described is socialization. That's not to do with your gender. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are countries where that's not the case. Um, not those two specific things particularly, but for example, in the Scandinavian countries, they changed their regulations around parental leave for new babies. So that of the one year off or at home with the baby, the mother could not take more than 10 months and the father had to take at least two months. And that was Norway. And they were moving it towards six months, six months. And in Sweden, they moved it to six months each. That has a tremendous impact on the brain of a child as it grows. Most of the differences that we see, like a girl's more likely to become a nurse and a man's more likely to become an engineer, is because that's modeling from what we've seen from before. There's no reason for that to be true. I mean, Sure, you don't see that many female neuroscientists, but, you know, here I am on your podcast. So, <laughs> um, and I was a doctor, not a nurse, although I did, when I did my elective, you know, and you're allowed to go to like a super rural area somewhere, the changing rooms um, in the hospital had a male sign that said doctors and a female sign that said nurses. And I was like, well, which one am I supposed to go into? <laughs> <laughs> Socialization. Is that what you call it? Exactly. So let's say you've got a couple of young children and they're born and bred in the same environments. When they first start, they like a, a female will be more inclined to go for a My Little Pony and a male will be more likely to grab a truck or a tractor. What, is that, is that socialisation or is there something to do with the brain that makes them more inclined to lean towards one or the other? Well, the thing is, that's not actually true because a baby has no choice. So if you have a boy and you choose to dress it in blue and you have a girl and you choose to dress it in pink, we're still playing out that same old role modeling that is, you know, not necessary. Um, and, you know, let's say you and Jackie get married and you have a son and people bring My Little Pony as a gift for your son. You're just, you know, you just, we just don't do that because it's mm. not socially acceptable. Mm. Um there's a study that shows um, a, high, a ramp with like nothing at the end. So you'd fall off if you got to the end of the ramp and they get these little toddlers and they're either dressed in blue or pink and they let them crawl up the ramp. If the baby was dressed in pink, people will stop them way before they get towards the end of the ramp. If the baby was dressed in blue, they'll let them go as far to the edge as possible and then they'll come and pick them up. But the genders of the children were not aligned to the colors that they were wearing. So it showed oh. our biases. Our bias was if I see a baby in pink and that's a little girl, I need to go and protect her because she won't be able to cope if she gets to the end of the ramp. If I see a baby in blue and I assume that it's a boy, even if it may not be, I'll be like, oh, you know, let him get to the end, let him learn how to be a man and, you know, don't help him, kind of make him independent and all that kind of thing. We also know that men that have a wife who stays at home are less likely to promote women in the workplace. Men that have a wife with a high powered or equal job to them are much more likely to promote women in the workplace. So I'd say, I, I think you've asked your questions really well in that it's complex. It obviously is on a bit of a spectrum of both of those things. Um, but I think that the beauty of neuroplasticity is that if I wanted to do a boy thing as my career, I could. Yeah. That's neuroplasticity in a, in a nutshell. You can do whatever you want and you can teach your brain how to do it. When I was at Oxford, we had, a, we had ladies rugby teams. Mm. That was like quite, you know, rugby was quite big. I, I wasn't in it, but um, loads of girls played rugby and I hadn't really seen that before I went to university. So, you know, I think like 
maybe apart from war, you do, you know, you see women less so, but you do see them doing most of the things that we traditionally thought were more male things. There's a lot more black cabbies in London that are male than female. How do you ever see a female black cabbie? Yeah, I have, I have seen a couple, but it's definitely like unusual. I agree. So as I said earlier, any of, you know, of any gender differences that are of note, possibly navigation and memory is one that is more seen in the male brain than the female brain. But again, it could be like, you know, imagine you're a little girl, well, you know, like a teenager and people are starting to say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you say a black cab driver. I imagine that the response to that would be quite negative. Um, so not negative in a bad way, but just but just like, oh, that's unusual, that's strange, you know. So, so I think that there's an element of that to it as well. But yeah, I mean, I could not do that to save my life. I, I would never be able to learn the knowledge. Yeah, because so the knowledge for someone that's listening to this that doesn't understand. So a black cabbie has to, they can't use navigation techniques uh, or they can't use navigation devices, right? Mm. So they have to learn every single street in London and that can take five, ten years until, mm. they, until they get, until they learn the knowledge. Isn't there, you talk about how their brains change physically during that process, don't you? Mm. So for a while, I want to say 10, maybe 15 years ago, we didn't know whether people who were super good at navigation were more likely to become a cab driver. So it was like, are cab drivers good at navigation because they've learned the knowledge or is it because they were always going to find that easier than, say, I was? And so then they did this proper scanning studies and they showed that it wasn't that you were drawn to it because it was easy for you. It was that the process of intense learning, you know, this years of going over and over and over the, all the streets in London, that produced physical structural changes in the brain. So in the hippocampus, which is in the limbic system, which I previously mentioned in terms of emotions and um, intuition, the hippocampus has a part that connects memory and emotion, but it also has a part that connects memory and navigation. And so that part of the hippocampus that connects memory and navigation, that grows in volume after completing the knowledge. Once I was in a, in a black cab with my husband and we know the cab driver really well. And we were going to the airport and just as we were like getting towards terminal five, he said, oh, I did tell you it was terminal three, didn't I? And the cab driver was like really like anxious and stressed. And, and my husband just burst out laughing. And I said to the cab driver, it's okay, mate. You've got a bigger hippocampus than him. <laughs> Anybody would have known what that meant. It's so much more complex than people think. When I first got to London, I just thought a black cab driver was just another cabbie. But exceptional, exceptional like detail goes into what they do. Let's finish up with your three best bits of advice that you would give someone to look after their brain. I like that. Um my top one would have to be sleep. We've talked in a lot of detail about various factors around sleep, but my top piece of advice would be try to get eight hours of sleep every night. My second one would actually be what I consider to be quite a superpower, which is meditation. And I'm just launching a new online program with MIT and I've included meditation as part of the weekly activities. I've started generating mantras for people because using a mantra for meditation is actually the most the most effective way of improving your brain health. Why is that? Um, we don't really know, but it's just the research on, on transcendental meditation shows that repeating a word or a phrase has um, beneficial effects in terms of improving brain performance. It's not necessarily better in terms of reducing stress or anxiety or like slowing down your breathing, but for cognitive performance, that mantra repetition seems to be really powerful. And my third one will be enjoy eating dark chocolate and drinking good quality coffee because and then the reason I'm, say, I'm saying that for a reason which is that stress kills brain cells so of all of the things that we've just spoken about Andy try to do all of them sure but do not get stressed about it if you're not exercising or you're not sleeping enough at the moment be zen about it because it's the stress that will kill you not the lack of exercise or the lack of sleep 
Oh, it's amazing. I get I get stressed about both. If I'm not exercising, I get stressed. If I don't sleep, I I get stressed. So go and, just go and have a square of dark chocolate and take a few deep breaths and be happy. That is such a good result. <laughs> such a good result. Dr. Tara Swart, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. This was a great conversation. Oh, it was epic. And if you want to know more information, make sure you get a book. It's called The Source. And you can also head to taraswart.com or check out Dr. Tara Swart on Twitter or Instagram. And if you like this episode, the best way to thank me is to leave a review or most importantly, give it a share on social media with your mates. See you again next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 